Hi everyone, my name's Ian McLaughlin and I'm a fifth year PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania and today I'm joined by Leanna McCary and since you're calling me out on what year I am, I'm a sixth year oh. in <laughs> chemical engineering, I'm uh, also here at UPenn. A return speaker. <laughs> and so Liana is here to talk about pipelines, which obviously is very controversial these days. Right, so today we're going to talk about pipelines and then after that we're going to talk a little bit about the proposed uh, budget cuts um, by the Trump administration. Uh, I'm going to talk most about um, the NIH, but we're going to touch on some of the other things that have been cut. But we're going to start with pipelines. So there are 2.5 million miles of pipeline in this country. So that includes natural gas lines in towns, as well as those that carry the natural gas and crude oil from the source to the refineries and the local distribution points. Um, so the ones that are carrying it from the mines to the refineries are the ones that have been in the news more recently. So like the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone uh, XL Pipeline, which has recently been granted permit. Uh, and those kinds are the focus of this discussion. So so when it comes to being granted like permission, right, as far as I understand it, like most of the pipelines have been built, right? And so what what I think has just happened is that the State Department gave the okay for completion of the project? So from what I understand, it's the Dakota Access Pipeline that has a significant portion, portion that's built, and there is the part that needed to be approved by the Army Corps of Engineers because they take care of the waterways. Ah, uh, so okay, so that's Dakota, yeah. this is Keystone. Whereas the Keystone, uh, apparently the State Department has just said, okay, you're allowed to cross the Canada-US border, and now everything still has to go through a, a lot of the regulation and stuff that I'll talk about in a second with my discussion on pipelines. Excellent. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, but so these, like I said, the pipelines from the refineries are the ones that are contentious more often. These are the are massive, like the Dakota Access Pipeline one, I think is about 30 inches in diameter. So uh, that's uh, like your bigger than encircling your arms. Bigger than a, a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Significantly bigger than a baby. <laughs> Uh, and so they're con controversial because of the environmental and human health effects of leaks and spills, particularly in proximate proximity to people and water sources. What I want to talk about today is somewhat distinct from the broader social justice issues, such as sovereignty and relations between Native Americans and the United States. These are obviously really important. Uh, but before I did research on pipelines, I had no idea how they were built or maintained. So this is mostly an overview of pipeline technology and a discussion based on the premise that you have to transport liquid fuels. So personally, I would be happy if it weren't necessary at all, but we still have technological barriers to complete dependence on renewable energies related to their intermittent production. So with wind and solar, they're not consistent, and we don't have affordable batteries that can store enough power that are small enough for regular use to offset when it isn't shining, when the sun isn't shining, or the wind isn't blowing, for example. But if you want to help renewables in addition to voicing your feelings to your representatives, if you control your electricity bill, you can look for energy suppliers in your area. So I'm currently getting 100% of my electricity at home from a wind farm that I think is in Ohio. Uh, my power is still distributed by Pico, which is the Philadelphia Electric Company, uh, but they are required to get the amount of electricity that I use from the supplier I chose. So if you live in a city like Philadelphia, I bet you've seen people on the sidewalks. Yeah, like Green Mountain, I think, is, is one of them around here. Yeah, but you don't have to wait until you encounter them. You can look up such a supplier online. So just to be clear, from personal experience, it won't necessarily cost you more for the renewable energy. But I'm not a salesperson, and I can't quote <laughs> those numbers for you. So um, 
Anyway, I'm talking about transporting fossil fuels today, not about renewable energy sources. There are four main methods of transporting fossil fuels from the point of extraction to refineries and beyond. So these are rail cars, water transport, trucks, and pipelines, and all of them have their own pros or cons. So boats generally require secondary transportation. Trains go closer to people in populated areas than pipelines or boats do. Right, yeah. So like, like I walk to lab, at least when I can, and like... Whenever I walk by the South Street Bridge, it's a very important bridge in Philadelphia. Like, there's always these gargantuan tanks on, on trains, and I'm pretty sure those are filled with oil, right? Yeah, absolutely, and that's actually also next to a heavily used running trail that right, uh, the Schuylkill River Trail. Yeah, I think the Schuylkill River, River Trail. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of people right next to this this train, um, and so trains and trucks both can have explosively catastrophic failures, and when they go near people, that's not generally a good thing right um but all four transport options can cause human health issues and environmental damage so uh the big pipelines are generally considered safer and significantly cheaper but they aren't without their own issues and that's again what our focus is today so a lot of the information i'll be talking about next comes from the u.s department of transportation pipeline and hazardous materials safety administration whose website has a tab called pipeline construction so obviously the first thing they do is assess the transportation needs. I went to a talk recently that mentioned that companies need to justify the pipelines based on the amount of oil in the field that they are transporting from. And here's a part where I'm a little confused because the website distinguishes between route selection and regulatory processes, but route selection also includes environmental assessments and discussions with people and organizations who might be affected by the route. But the website suggests that the company can purchase the land and acquire right-of-way access before going to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to deal with those regulations. In any case, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, known as FERC, will check if the route will affect other infrastructure as well as buildings, fences, crops, water supplies, soil, vegetation, wildlife, air quality, noise, safety, landowner interests, etc. That's a lot of like due diligence. A lot, yeah. So, and at that point, they could either let it move forward or ask for an environmental impact statement, which is in uh, more in-depth than the environmental assessment that was done in the previous step, and it could require adjustment of the route. So the Army Corps of Engineers had already performed an environmental impact statement with respect to the Dakota Access Pipeline, though it's not clear to me if that, that happened before or after the EPA encouraged them to reassess the route. Um, but they were going to review the EIS or perform a second one, but a month ago they decided it wasn't actually necessary, uh, likely influenced by the administration's position, and they are, are going to allow construction under Lake Oahe, and oil could be coming through the Dakota Access Pipeline anytime, as far as I learned. So anyway, after the route is settled, they design the pipes, the thickness, material coating, and strength, and they have to take the environment into cons to consideration to make sure the pipe won't corrode. So, so those parameters are set by the environment, so they vary between different pipeline environments and stuff like that? Sure. I assume that... Uh, areas that are wetter they probably have to have a special coating that prevents interesting rusting yeah. And yeah it makes sense such. like that's just part of designing things for structural integrity right but uh, and one of the more direct effects on the locale of the pipeline is site prep basically they have to strip a region above where they will bury the pipeline which means felling trees getting rid of shrubs and so forth and down the line, they do, quote-unquote, site restoration, but obviously this is relatively superficial. They can't replant the trees, much less replace mature trees, because that could damage the pipeline if you walk down the street and see how a sidewalk is buckled by, uh, by the roots. Uh, you can easily imagine that it could 
destroy a pipeline. So that's one part of environmental concerns with fairly straightforward disruption of local ecosystems. But that's after some of these other steps, which include pipe stringing, where they basically arrange the sections that they've made along the route, and then they dig a trench. And here's a quote that federal regulations require that pipelines be buried at least 30 inches below the surface in rural areas and deeper in more populated areas. In addition, the pipeline must be buried deeper in some locations, such as road crossings and crossings of bodies of water. Yeah, 30 inches. I mean, that strikes me as so shallow. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I mean, that's about a diameter of the pipe, at least. Right. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but, and so I just said that they dig a trench, but trenching is obviously not how it works everywhere. You can't dig a trench across a body of water and then put the pipe in and then cover it up again. Because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so they use a technique called horizontal directional drilling, where they drill across and um, underneath and essentially pull the prefabricated pipe back through the hole they drilled. And this is what they're going to do for the Dakota Access Pipeline, or what they are doing, as far as I know, right now. Um, but also, just for the record, the Dakota Access Pipeline is going to be 20 and 300 feet horizontally from existing natural gas pipelines, and also be 100 feet underneath the lake, which is deeper than those current pipelines. So then they basically assemble it. Uh, there are a bunch of steps that they call bending, welding, coating, lowering, and backfilling. So that's just making sure it's connected and covering it up. And so then after it's installed, they fill it with water to a higher pressure than operation pressure to test for leaks and so forth. So also, side note, this is common for things to be designed to some strength that exceeds expected use. And this includes chairs and elevators and, and everything that you want to... Make sure it doesn't kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and... I mean, I guess that includes uh, uh, medicine, too, right? Testing for medicine, you test Ideally. at <laughs> higher doses and make sure that that's not going to be toxic to people. Yeah, you certainly want to find this sort of LB50 and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, but, uh, lethal yeah. dose 50, right. uh, when <laughs> 50% of the test subjects die at that dose. Yeah, that's right. Nicely <laughs> done. <laughs> and so then they perform site restoration that I alluded to above, which might not be enough to mitigate environmental impacts. So I was talking to an ecologist friend of mine, and he told me about how habitat fragmentation um, can really disrupt ecosystems uh, when a previously forested area is divided by the pipeline. For example, if you're a little bird or butterfly or small mammal, if you're trying to cross the deforested area, it will disproportionately expose you to predators. And also, there are other resulting environmental impacts that are situationally dependent and less immediately obviously bad, such as erosion once trees no longer hold the soil in, in place, which could affect local stream health, uh, among other things. In any case, once the pipeline is in place, what happens when it is in operation is equally important. So they monitor for leaks, and they have sensors placed periodically that enable them to monitor pressure, flow rate, and temperature. And beforehand, they'll have figured out what values those should be under ideal conditions and keep track. And apparently they also have dogs that patrol the lines to sniff for leaks, as well as digital sensors that can test both the air and soil. That is so crazy. <laughs> they have dogs that can smell for leaks? Well, they can smell the, the organic, oh, the of course. volatile yeah. organic. That's a very um, smelly thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. good point. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, for natural gas, they, they put in smells they so that people can, yeah. can find if they have a gas leak, because otherwise natural gas is odorless. Right. I, I learned that from King of the Hill <laughs> about propane. <laughs> Useful to get your information anywhere you can. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, 
But we also have federal and state inspectors who are tasked with oversight of these. Uh, but there are only so many of them. I think there are only 100 federal inspectors. I don't know how many state inspectors are, but I read somewhere that there are only 100 federal inspectors who have to make sure that everything for these millions of miles of pipelines is being handled correctly. But uh, here's a summary of the pros and cons. To go back to what I was saying at the top, I'm going to point out some benefits of pipelines, assuming, again, the necessity of such oil transport. So the benefits are there are fewer trucks carrying fuel on the roads, which means less chance of accidents, less fuel consumed in transporting the, that oil, and less damage to infrastructure from those heavy trucks being on the roads. Also, incidents involving trucks and trains have a solid chance of being more explosive than spills from pipelines, like I said before. But the drawbacks, it is harder to locate a pipeline leak than one from a truck or a train. And if they aren't using infrastructure that already exists, the pipeline construction can damage environmentally sensitive locations and leaks where pipes cross bodies of water could lead to contamination. And pipes that are buried under the ground can corrode without obvious signs until those volatile chemicals and pressure drops are remotely detected. So these are things that go into environmental assessments, but those don't mean anything if no one has the ability to limit what's built which is where policy and regulation comes into it. So regulations are put in pl into place to account for externalities that aren't incorporated into the market. If you ask Google what an externality is, you'll get this definition. It is a side effect or consequence of an industrial or commercial activity that affects other parties without this being reflected in the cost of the goods or services involved, such as the pollination of surrounding crops by bees kept for honey. But not all externalities are so benign. Companies who want to make a profit will naturally opt for the cheapest means of producing their resource, which is totally rational. Environmental regulations are intended to protect the public from the consequences of a failure of a pipeline uh, in this case, or again, of environmental damage from the construction thereof. They ensure that the pipelines are built more safely, are monitored more carefully, and that remunerations are made in the case of spills. Obviously, it's not in the company's best interest for a leak to happen regardless of regulations, but without a legislative structure in which they're held, they're held responsible for damage they do to health or the environment, only public opinion would keep them accountable. And not everyone has the time or inclination to research every company they encounter on a daily basis in order to make an informed purchase. So that is a little bit of my counter to free market versus regulatory uh, importance. Right. It helps to have people who devote their attention to this exactly. issue. Exactly. Yeah. That's their job. Their job is to make sure they are doing things that are uh, ethical and safe. So just to reiterate, I would prefer that we didn't extract more oil and didn't build pipelines that even temporarily disrupt ecosystems. And while we're at it, that there were no associated social justice issues. I agree with the interpretation of data that says our planet is getting warmer because of human action. My main comment on this topic is that you have to weigh the different costs and benefits. Obviously, everything I've discussed is moot if you do choose renewable energy. But if you're going to transport liquid fuels, do you want to do it with trucks or trains, or do you want to transport it with pipelines? And if you do build a pipeline, where will you build it to be most cost-effective and least environmentally impactful and harmful to human health? Well, so so in my mind, the question is, right, so we're, we're using fossil fuels, yeah. right? And we're clearly dependent upon them for at least the foreseeable future. Um, and so in some cases, pipelines present some... Uh, uh, benefits, right, where you can avoid some of the deleterious consequences of transporting it by road or by train. But what matters is where the pipelines are built, right, and how they're built. Yeah. And so it helps to have an organizational structure that is 
that has some oversight over where these pipelines go, who's uh, influenced by their placement, and how well they're built. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so it's not that pipelines are by definition evil or destructive. Right. Exactly. Or, it's just it's about what is uh, fiscally reasonable for a company to build, and also how much where they're going to build it will affect people and the environment and accounting for those externalities accounting for the externalities and that's the only thing that keeps them from doing it as cheaply as possible without regards to any of the effects that they have that won't go into the cost of building the pipeline right that a company wouldn't willingly take on right Yeah, yeah that's exactly the definition of externalities it's something that they don't have to pay unless somebody makes them yeah essentially (laughs) right okay so um, from pipelines, uh, well, so so much has been happening uh, in the news lately. At least uh, for me, it's uh, it's been pretty hard to keep up. Um, I've literally gone through, I don't know, five topics that I was planning on talking about uh, for this podcast. Um, but today, something came up um, that I think probably a lot of people who um, might be listening to this podcast or are involved in science might be interested in. And so, um, probably what like one of the main things that's popped up on our radars um, or at least on the radars of people who are involved in research uh, was the federal budget that's been proposed by the Trump administration a couple weeks ago and so um, this proposed budget focuses largely on what's called discretionary spending and that's as opposed to mandatory spending which includes things like Social Security Medicare uh, Medicaid things that uh, most voters aren't interested in having changed all that much. <laughs> um, and so basically, it's just things that aren't reconsidered every year by the Congress. Um, and so this budget proposal by the administration didn't really address those concerns. It focused on discretionary spending. And so that's where the funding for uh, both Liana's and my work comes from, and probably yours too, <laughs> if you're involved in, in science uh, at, at some level. Uh, that's funded by the federal government. So it contained a lot of budget augmentations, and the majority of those were fairly predictable reductions in federal spending, right? Just judging from sort of campaign uh, uh, speeches and stuff like that, we knew to expect budget cuts. Um, And uh, basically everything apart from defense-associated components of the federal budget, um, as well as uh, veterans affairs. And so um, it's worth keeping in mind, though, that these proposed cuts aren't like proportionately spread evenly across all features of the budget. And so some are more significantly reduced than other uh, components of the budget. Overall, this would be a pretty substantial reorganization of appropriations that are used by agencies and institutes that ultimately fund grants that researchers use to conduct their studies. Uh, Also pay graduate students and postdocs. So Leanna and I are both uh, graduate students. Leanna is about to finish her PhD. Uh, I have probably about a year. We'll see. Uh, But then also these funds support principal investigators, so the people for whom we work. So and these are also professors at colleges that teach classes. Right. So this is not purely research exclusively. Um, These grants also support the salaries of professors who teach college students and teach, you know, graduate students. And so without going too deep into the types of things that um, the administration is asking Congress to fund, uh, much of which they, they discussed on the campaign trail, we, we can discuss what some folks at like science advocacy groups um, have articulated and have expected to see. So uh, speaking for myself, I, I was frankly, I, I was surprised to see such a substantial cut uh, to the NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health uh, budget in particular. 
um, I think pretty much everybody expected to see fairly significant reductions in certain areas of research spending, um, like it or not, uh, like climate environmental research, for example, which would be uh, associated with the type of work that Liana was talking about just a minute ago. Though perhaps we didn't expect it to be as severe as it's proposed to be. Um, but I, having watched a handful of the live streamed discussions that were hosted by AAAS uh, and Research America, everybody sounded pretty confident that, if anything, the uh, NIH budget would remain largely untouched, maybe reduced slightly. And so um, I think that when everybody saw the proposed 18 to 20% cut to the NIH budget, which amounts to about $6 billion, they were pretty surprised. And so um, if, if you listen to the first episode of the podcast, uh, one of the things I talked about were some of the concerns that were raised by Senator uh, Dick Durbin during the discussion of the 21st Century Cures Act, which was ultimately passed and ended up appropriating about $4.8 billion over the course of 10 years um, for specific priorities at the NIH and not just general grant funding. And so one of the concerns um, that, that was raised uh, was that if they passed this bill, they could potentially use it to then cut funding to the NIH subsequently. Um, and it looks like he actually might have been right about that. Um, but first of all, it's important to just keep in mind that while the executive branch makes recommendations, in other words, wh while the president makes recommendations regarding budget priorities and funding levels, just remember that federal budgets are passed by the Congress and not by the executive branch. So in other words, it's representatives and senators that are ultimately responsible for writing and passing a budget. And so I unfortunately couldn't attend the, the 42nd annual forum on science and technology policy that's hosted by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, but it seems that this past one was fairly unique in that they weren't able to find a, a member of the administration to articulate and perhaps defend their position on science and technology. And so perhaps partly a result, as a result, um, the forum didn't have anyone present to, to defend their proposed budget. Well, I guess one of the ways that conservatives might think about federal versus private research funding uh, is that the, again, the market will drive demand. Uh, so federal funding has decreased significantly other than the stimulus in the earlier uh, in the last decade. Um, but private research institutions are going to have their own priorities. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that's definitely a topic that I, I want to uh, talk to um, perhaps an economist or, or whomever I can find at Penn who's willing to sit down with me for an hour. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that that is almost certainly true that there's a difference in ideology with regards to whether or not the market can identify optimal um, topics that warrant research whereas publicly funded research isn't really subject to the influence of the market because yeah, one, there's no profit motive uh one example i have is of orphan diseases right so right. rare diseases that don't get as much funding attention uh, especially by pharmaceutical companies because it's not profitable when there are only a few uh, potential customers for them. Right. Yeah. And, and so the government can incentivize, right, um, uh, addressing some of those orphan diseases through you know, tax incentives and, and things like that. But um, but yeah, that, that definitely is a topic that warrants um, its own podcast. I'd really like to talk to somebody with whom I, I might disagree um, on, on that um, issue. But um, but um, so in any case, just the just keep in mind that you know these budget proposals and these massive cuts that have been proposed they're coming from the executive branch and the executive branch does not ultimately pass 
federal budgets. And so while the, uh, the 42nd Annual Forum on Science and Technology didn't have anybody from the executive branch or from the administration to talk about their, their proposed budget, um, they, you know, the, I, I think I read the show must go on is, is how they articulated it. And so um, they had, you know, members of some of the institutes and agencies talk about their perspectives and what they expect. And so um, one of the people that they had was Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH under both former President Obama and now Trump. And um, so he identified the fact that the 21st Century Cures Act passed uh, after the 2016 election as evidence that there is strong congressional support for the NIH. And he also identified um, a handful of, of initiatives with non-governmental uh, organizations like the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative uh, and a couple of others uh, for efforts like developing a human cell atlas um, and the use of CRISPR to treat a sickle cell, uh, as well as um, some of the 21st Century Cures associated efforts. Um, and, and an example of, uh, of this that is very relevant to my work is the um, Allen Brain Atlas. Um, and uh, this, this is essentially a partnership with Paul Allen, uh, one of the, I think, founders of Microsoft. Um, and it's just become a staple in, in uh, research. So these are very valuable uh, initiatives. Um, and, and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and, and the Allen Institute, they are not governmental uh, organizations. Um, but in any case, Dr. Collins also hinted that the Republican chairs of appropriations committees in both chambers have indicated that they're interested in increasing biomedical research. Uh, evidently, a, a group in the House has approved a uh, $1.25 billion increase for NIH spending, and a bill in the Senate would appropriate $2 billion more. And so it's unclear how these funds would be appropriated and really what the status of, of these um, bills are after the, the proposed budget from the executive branch. Uh, like, would they be devoted to specific initiatives, as is the case with the 21st Century Cures Act? It's hard to know. At least I, it's hard for me to know at this point. Um, but it's interesting, right, that there might be this disconnect between the legislative branch and the executive branch in terms of budget priorities for biomedical research. But just, uh, you know, in the context of this proposed budget, um, this would reduce the budget of the NIH to its lowest level in 15 years. And that's before accounting for inflation. And then when it comes to the NSF, the National Science Foundation, which uh, to which far less of the budget is even allocated, it's a total of $7.5 billion, things are a little different. Um, there hasn't been a lot of discussion of the NSF, um, but Representative Lamar Smith is proposing that funding be appropriated to specific directorates or, or basically just domains of research support within the NSF as opposed to the NSF at large. And the ones he's proposing are biology, math and physical sciences, engineering, and computing. And so this excludes the geosciences and social and behavioral sciences. So I'd also like to point out that these days, a lot of these science uh, fields have become very interdisciplinary, so it's harder to bin it into a particular bucket. So I'm a chemical engineer, but I work a lot with people in physics, and other people in my same lab work with people in chemistry or materials science. So it's really hard to really pin us into one focus area when everyone can be doing things that are really really vastly different and uh, all... And symbiotic, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and like, I, I know in, in neuroscience, um, it is a fundamentally interdisciplinary uh, uh, field. 
And so a lot of the most interesting innovation within neuroscience occurs at the boundaries between like electrophysiology and pharmacology. Absolutely. You know, um, and, and behavioral neuroscience. And a lot of people in materials have been doing things that are uh, biomimicry. So like the adhesives because of gecko, the gecko ability to stick to walls. So they use microstructures in material science to form similar products. Uh, very cool. Um, and so while Representative Smith has suggested that the NSF itself is supportive of these sort of more specified priorities, the director of the NSF apparently indicated that she'd prefer broader support for all of the directorates rather than picking favorites. So also with respect to setting priorities for science, our PIs, our principal investigators, our bosses, and uh, we have spent a lot of time researching our science and working on these things and trying to identify areas that are of merit and interest. So it's a little hard to be told by an external force that our work is not valuable to the public sphere. Right. I mean, you know, I think that there is there is an argument to be made that having fresh eyes, having an objective perspective, sort of evaluate the, the performance of, of an agency, that's valuable and, and that's fine. But um, I think that there is an, also an argument to be made that there ought to be more a, a, a greater degree of a back and forth between the scientists and the legislators that appropriate funds so that we can be on the same page here. Um, and that, you know, I, I think Lamar Smith makes the representative Lamar Smith makes the argument that we need to be investing in sciences that promote the national interest. And I understand that perspective completely. But sometimes it's unclear that a given project might be doing just that um, without specialized knowledge in, in, in the questions that are being asked. And even with specialized knowledge, you don't know what your work could mean 20 years from now. Indeed, yeah, that's a great point. Okay, and, and so before moving on, literally as I was preparing for this podcast, a couple of articles literally came out at like 10 a.m. this morning and continue to come out. I'm sure that there's one that just came out <laughs> that enumerates some specifics about how these cuts are proposed to be administered um, and and some priorities that are going to come into effect or, or that are proposed to come into effect even earlier than, than these proposed cuts. And so this is based on a document uh, that came from the administration that specifies budget reduction proposals for fiscal year 2017, not fiscal year 2018, right? And so the Trump administration sent this discretionary uh, spending proposal to Congress that specifies $1.23 billion in cuts specifically this year, so before next year. Um, and it's a bit unclear as to what the relationship is between these new specifics and uh, the initially proposed $6 billion cut. My understanding is that this would be on top of the cuts that were proposed earlier. Um, but these reports indicate that like $50 million of this $1.23 billion would be cut from uh, IDEA or IDEA grants, um, which are, these are grants that are focused on more effectively distributing NIH funding for biomedical research. And I just, I think it's worth getting specific on where these grants go. Because these IDEA grants are grants aimed at institutions in areas of the United States that have received comparatively lower levels of funding. And these tend to include rural and medically underserved communities. And these are states uh, that include Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, North and South Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Kentucky, West Virginia, South Carolina, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Delaware, and Puerto Rico. Um, and so, and, and the rest of the reduction, the rest of the $1.23 billion um, will evidently be aimed at reducing research grant funding generally. So that means that 
a, some aspiring scientist in those states might not be able to go to graduate school next year because their PI couldn't get a grant. Absolutely. Or, you know, if, if they would like to, they'd have to leave their state, leave their home. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that is the practical ramification of, of that type of a cut. And it also can hurt people who are already in graduate programs if, they're, if their boss can't get more funding for their project because the, the funding does not always correspond to the amount of time that a student is going to be doing their studies. Absolutely. Right. And so given the fact that the rest of the, um, of the $1.23 billion will be aimed at reducing research grant funding generally, um, that's exactly what would happen. And so just to quote this document, um, uh, so you can just hear it from the horse's mouth, uh, quote, these savings could be achieved by eliminating spending on new idea grants, $50 million, and reducing research grants, $1.182 billion. Additionally, uh, there's a proposed $314 million cut at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, specifically targeting occupational safety, public health and preparedness grants, and domestic and global HIV AIDS programs. Mental health block grants administered by the substance abuse and mental health services would be cut by $100 million. And so, I mean, honestly, this document, uh, I, I just received it today. It enumerates many, many more proposed cuts, uh, most of which are programs and agencies with which I'm completely unfamiliar. Uh, but if you're interested in exploring the proposal, uh, check out the references for this podcast on our blog. It'll include a link to a PDF that breaks it all down. Okay, and so just to give you an idea of the perspectives of people at advocacy uh, organizations and stuff like that, um, here are some of the quotes of folks who have been involved in NIH administration. And frankly, they, seemed to, they seem a little alarmed. Uh, and these were all just in response to the, to the initial proposed cuts for fiscal year 18, right? Not the $1.23 I, uh, I just discussed. And so Kathy Hudson, who is the former NIH deputy director who departed last December, suggests that because the NIH would have to procure funding for some of its current studies, and because most of the NIH's budget is devoted to annual payments for ongoing grants, these cuts may ultimately result in virtually no newly awarded grants in fiscal year 2018. And uh, this is also in addition to some indications that the administration is interested in reorganizing the 27 institutes and centers within the NIH. Okay, so with all that said, <laughs> There seems to be a fairly unanimous skepticism that this severe of a cut to the NIH budget would actually be able to pass Congress or would be passed by Congress. And so, for example, uh, Jennifer uh, Zeitzer, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm mispronouncing names, uh, she's the director of legislative relations for the Federation of American Societies of Experimental Biology. Um, so she said, quote, I don't think this has any chance of getting through Congress. And she adds, and I'm quoting from an article in Science Mag, Quote, perhaps the White House Budget Office did us a favor. If it was a small cut, it would be hard to stay outraged. Um, and so there's, there's also been a fairly unanimous and significant response to these proposals by biomedical advocacy organizations in general. And so, uh, for example, uh, Lisbeth Boros, again, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing uh, names here, uh, she's the president of United for Medical Research. She responded by saying, quote, a cut of such magnitude would have serious repercussions on medical research, jobs, and the economy. It would stymie major progress towards treatment and cures of diseases and be felt by all Americans. NIH research fuels the pipeline of discovery and innovation necessary to prevent, treat, and cure our most vexing diseases, and it has a significant economic impact, supporting more than 350,000 jobs across the United States and contributing some $60 billion annually in economic activity. So if you remember, if we talked about antibiotic resistance in the first episode and how one of the issues is that there aren't very many being developed these days, 
And if we're having funding cuts to healthcare uh, research, then that's definitely going to be even harder. And there will be fewer and fewer antibiotics that can successfully treat bacterial infections. That's a great point. Um, and so uh, another quote is from Stuart Young, and he's the executive director of the Task Force on American Innovation. And this is a, a D.C.-based group of companies, university associations, and professional societies. And so he says, quote, with cuts to basic research offered in the fiscal year 18 budget, our nation risks creating an innovation deficit, which would diminish our ability to compete globally, to grow our economy, and to safeguard our nation. And so there's a whole list of more quotes from groups like uh, uh, the National Science Teachers Association, AAAS, of course, Research America, and the National Brain Tumor Society in Newton, Massachusetts. And there, there's just a bunch more. So again, check out the, um, the, the blog post associated with this podcast for a link to the, that webpage if you'd like to see those quotes. And so, of course, you know, there's obviously much more to talk about here. Like, for example, the proposed or the proposal to entirely eliminate funding for the National Endowment for the Humanities, which only receives $148 million, uh, or it only received that in 2016. And I know that's a lot of money, but uh, in comparison to the rest of the federal budget, it's really not that much. For perspective, that's like saying that I just bought a house so I can't afford a piece of gum. Right, yeah. yeah. And so so, um, so the the National Endowment for the Arts represents so $148 million. It apparently represents 0.003% of federal spending in 2016. So yeah, it's a a pretty good uh, comparison. (laughs) And, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that uh, this National Endowment for the Humanities awards grants for research, education, and outreach in social sciences and humanities. Um, But but honestly, I'd prefer to have somebody involved in the social sciences and humanities come on to discuss the ramifications of these budget adjustments, because I'm sure they'd have more sort of intimate knowledge of of how these these funds are used um, and how far they go. and then with regards to the very severe cuts to the to uh, EPA funding, like we probably need to do a whole podcast on on enumerating all the ramifications of, of so severe a change in in funding. Um, but clearly, they would have a lot of uh, implications for the monitoring of building pipelines and and um, and environmental impacts and stuff like that. And so in the future, um, I'm hoping to be able to talk with somebody more specifically about, the returns on investment that federally funded basic science provides to the economy, like getting into it, getting into the details. Uh, but suffice it to say that reductions in federally supported research would have very significant consequences for the future of research in the United States. And so if you think that publicly supported basic science is important, make sure to contact your representatives by phone and let them know that you oppose reductions in federal support for basic science. Uh, there are a t- now there are a ton <laughs> of ways that you can find out who your representatives are that are great. Um, I made one at anthropoid.science uh, support science where you can find the phone numbers of legislators by your district who are directly involved in appropriating funds or oversight over uh, uh, science grant awarding agencies. Um, but the point is to communicate with your representatives and make sure that they understand that you consider science funding to be a priority. More broadly, I think Facebook apparently just unveiled a widget where they oh, did give they? you an ability to get in touch with your uh, representatives That's through awesome. Facebook. That's excellent. Yeah. Okay. And so with that, we'll try and keep you up to date with uh, any uh, uh, changes. And again, keep in mind, this is just a proposal that's coming from the executive branch. And again, they do not write the federal budget. Your legislature does. Your representatives do. So make sure you contact them and communicate with them. And so until next time, thank you for listening.